increasing regulation, market saturation, and rising interest rates. Still think short-term rentals make sense? You're not alone. Join industry experts Bill Faith and Kenny Bedwell as they discuss how you can invest while still staying ahead of the curve, identifying trends before they happen, or blowing them away outright with their insights. This is STRonomics. Everybody, Bill Faith here from STRonomics. As you can see, I am solo today, and I'm going to be your only host. And I almost said, unfortunately, actually, fortunately, it's probably a better show with Kenny, but Kenny has had a huge life-changing occurrence over the weekend. He has a new young daughter that was born on Saturday, April 1st. Super exciting times for him and his wife. So he's not going to be able to join me on this episode. So all you have is me. And But what we're going to talk about today is investing and operating key data that I look at when I'm going into a new market, into making a new investment. I'm actually looking right now, just FYI, in two different places. One in Kentucky along the Bourbon Trail, kind of in that Lexington, Versailles, Shepherdsville, well, you know, Louisville area, and also down in Orlando. And there's some key data that I look at when I go into a market. So I'm going to go over the key data and then I'm going to tell you how I utilize it. So one of the reasons that I chose those two markets is I wake up usually between four or five o'clock in the morning, sometimes three, and I grab this little thing. It's called an iPhone. And the very first thing that I do is I check text messages and email, which is all the stuff you shouldn't do when you're an insomniac like myself. But you know what? I can't go back to sleep. So I fire up my phone. I get that out of the way. And then when I'm in investing mode, I go to STR Insights. And here's the reason. It's not because I do this podcast with Kenny. It's not because he's on my super team. It's not because he's in my mastermind. It's because it's the best tool to identify a new market. And that kind of leads me to the first component of data. It's really gross ROI. So I am, I don't want to say that I'm completely unbiased when I make an investment. I try to make as close to 100% as a financially driven decision as I can, but there's always this biasness. So I won't invest into a market I'm not interested in. You know, I'm not interested in investing in Tucumcari, New Mexico. No disrespect to anybody in Tucumcari, New Mexico. I've driven through it 50 times. I've gotten gas there. It's just not a place that interests me. And I do believe that we have to have a personal interest because we have to host, we have to market. Completely different than if I'm buying a multifamily and I'm not going to go in and I'm not going to have to market or I can have somebody else do it or I'm going to have long-term renters there for a year or two years or three years signing leases. So I think we have to be more emotionally invested into our properties from a marketing standpoint. So for me, that starts with gross ROI. I open up STR Insights. I literally put in a budget and I open up the country as my oyster. And I just sort by gross ROI around the entire country. I do make some eliminations. I mean, if I see a small market that only has 10 or 11 properties in my price range or in the bedroom count, it's probably going to be a little bit too small. So if I find something like super attractive, that's at 30%, 40% gross ROI, I'm going to have to do a little bit more digging, but that's kind of the first thing that I look at the first metric, the first piece of data when I'm getting, when I'm shopping into a new market is going to be the gross ROI. Now, when I'm making a lifestyle investment, like I did into Montana, the gross ROI still has to work. That's good. So along with some of the other investment metrics we'll get into here in just a second, but I'm actually sorting 
by marketplace. So I'd go into the entire state of Montana and then I would, I would look and see what they would have. And really one of the big things for me was I wanted a river. And the cool thing I love about SCR Insights is not only can you sort by, you know, going in and, and doing it by budget or by bedroom count. It's also that you can do it by state, you can do it by city, and you can do it by like national parks. There's a lot of great sorting features inside of it. But for me, it all starts with gross ROI. Remember, this is about investing. So we'll get to operating here in a second. Once I get past that component of gross ROI, I'm going to look at the annual revenue. And this is something that's really important. There's so much information that's missing from an annual revenue standpoint. You know, you think about depending, especially if you're in the Northeast investing, there's a lot of small mom and pop legacy property management companies that don't even have their properties listed on Airbnb, Airbnb and Verbo. So SCR Insights or, you know, AirDNA, Rabu, Mashvisor, they may or may not have access to that data. So I'm looking at all four of those, right? And that's something that's super important. This, this is that I want to look at all of those data sets. I'm going to look at averages. It's going to help me really exclude outliers that could skew the data that I'm looking at when I'm making my purchase decision, but that's going to be annual revenue. I think too many people get caught up in occupancy and ADR. Well, I do look at occupancy. There is no question. And that's going to be the third one, but I'm looking at annual revenue first, and then I'm going to look at the overall occupancy. And if I see that some place is doing $150,000 a year in revenue, and they're at like 47% occupancy where my portfolio typically averages around 66%, then I believe that creates a delta of opportunity for me, right? The delta of opportunity. Now, if I'm looking historically, like in the Smokies that have been 90% plus occupancies, and I see properties that are down in the 70, 75th percentile, that doesn't necessarily trigger opportunity for me. It triggers that there's a problem with that property and there's a reason that it's up for sale, right? So I'm going to kind of correlate that annual revenue with that occupancy level at the exact same time. The next data point is going to be the cost of insurance. Huge difference in the cost of insurance versus in, in the Smokies versus down on the Gulf. Or even here, I'm at my lake property. Insurance is very, very cheap here compared to being on the beach. So the beach mountain markets are, are going to vary dramatically. Also, the type of insurance policy. A lot of you are going and just getting standard homeowners policies and then layering on, you know, Let's add on rental income. Well, you really need to understand how that's going to be covered because that's not typically going to be covered the same way that, you know, a, a proper or a steadily uh, commercial insurance policy is going to be done. So in my last purchase, I had to purchase residence. I got turned down by proper because there wasn't a fire station close enough. It's too far outside of the main town of Whitefish. It's 12 miles outside. I'm in the middle of the Montana, you know, forest. There's BLM, if you will, all around us. So I did the homeowners through State Farm, and then I came in and layered proper on top of it for $2 million worth of liability. So I'm going to have to live with that addendum on the rental income, which is not the same. It's going to pay out what's on the books and only for displace, and it's a whole thing we'll get into in another episode. But that cost is still, it would have been about eight grand if I went straight through proper. I was able to save some money, but I'm giving up. Uh, some things on the exclusions by going with State Farm on the homeowners and then proper on the liability, but it is about $2,600, $2,700 less. That does not sit well with me. I would rather pay the extra money and have the ultimate coverage just based on my net worth and, and my liability. And I'm, that's one of the biggest things I want to protect, but that becomes a huge expense. At the beach, my average, you know, annual insurance premium right now is running, you know, about 12, 12 to 13,000, maybe 14,000 
to a year and a half ago on the renewal after Sally had hit, you know, it's in the $18,000 range. So thank goodness that's coming down a little bit. But, you know, when you're talking 12 grand, that is my second biggest investment that I'm making into this property. So that has to be a, a, a piece of data that we have to look at. It has to work its way into your performas because you need to also be looking at your DSCR, your, your debt coverage ratio on the performa. If you're using a performa that doesn't have debt coverage ratio, you're using a shitty performa. And you should be you should be upgrading the performa to make sure that that's included. The next one is really, I'm going to look at, so I've already, and by this time I've already run my performas on that investing side. I know what cash flow is going to be. I know what all these projections are going to be. But now I'm add, adding in is the bonus. I'm going to the tax records, go to the county assessor's office, look at what the assessed value is of the land and the dwelling. So that's going to impact my cost segregation study. Completely different. If I take this house, which is literally right on this lake at Lewis Smith Lake here, and I pick it up and put it across the street, the land value is probably cut by 60%, maybe 70%. So if the price was the same, the dwelling is going to be so much more valued across the street than being on the water. I'm going to get a much larger cost segregation, but that comes with potentially lower rents, right? So those are things that we have to consider. That's why, you know, Ryan Bakey, Kenny, myself, we all advise you never invest strictly for the cost sake benefit because you really need to be looking at that long-term cash flow. That's going to cost sake benefit. You're taking the majority of it in year number one and then poof, it's gone. And if you buy a dog that's only doing 5% or break even, now you're building a portfolio of dogs just based on that, you know, immediate gratification, that short-term benefit with your cost segregations. The next one's cleaning costs. So you know, I look at when I buy a property, the down payment, then typically the rehab or refurnishing, then the insurance cost, then my cleaning cost becomes my next largest cost. And a lot of that's going to tie into the length of stay. So you need to understand that data point as well, because if you're doing two night minimums on average versus four night minimums on average, you just doubled your cleaning cost. So those are a lot of things that people really don't get that deep and analytical when they're going through this, now I'm getting really into the finances. So I've already got that annual revenue. I'm going to go through all the expenses. I'm, I'm going to call the gas company. I'm going to call the electric company. I'm going to ask my listing or my buyer's agent to ask the listing agent to see if I can get copies of the gas, copies of their insurance. And many times, at least down at the beach, I can transfer their flood insurance and be able to keep their low premium. But I want to look at everything. I want to know if there's a pool, what are pool cleaning costs? You know, what are the property taxes? All of those things go into that performance so I can see what my cash on cash return is going to be. And that's really what a lot of people are talking about. You know, myself included was really the cash on cash. And that was a term not really from the back end, but really when I'm I trying to identify properties on the front end was that COC. There's two things, right? I'm actually willing to give up percentage on the cash on cash return for cash flow. So when I get into my bigger properties, like my premium beach property does did 350,000 plus last year, my Banner Oak property is going to close out the first year around 270,000. I'm willing to give up a few percentage points. I'm not going down to 10% by any means, but I'm willing to slide from 30 down to 20 if the cash flow is big enough. So those are decisions that you're going to have to make and why you want to know those upfront. Now, if I'm buying a half a million dollar property, that's only going to do $100,000 in revenue. I'm not going to do that at 20%. I've got to be at 30% cash on cash. I'm just not going to wait that long. But if it's greater cash flow, then I will make a decision to potentially do that. And I do on the bigger the properties, usually the smaller the cash on cash return 
for single family homes, not necessarily the same if you're looking at quadplexes or higher that have a commercial valuation on them. But you only get that when you exit anyways. So the cash flow can stay the same. Let's talk about operating for a second. Something that, you know, I started throwing around at the conference, but a lot of people aren't doing is when we, we need to reevaluate our properties. And I look at my portfolio on a quarterly basis. And it's kind of funny in my mastermind in 2021, I b- bought a house and I sold it within like 65 days. And people are like saying, oh my God, is Bill okay? Is he, you know, gone crazy? Is he, you know, going bankrupt? All these things. And like, no, I flipped nine houses in 2021 and made a lot of money because I wanted to increase my cash on equity. So when it was a little bit different, I don't like to use the word flip. I bought actually all of them without the intention. I never really intended to to sell any of them. Bree and I would rehab them, renovate them, redecorate them, ARV, increase the value. And this was all in Gulf Shores. It was increasing by three to 5% a week back then. And then we just have people to come in. Hey, can I buy your property? Can I buy your property? Yeah, but I'm going to do a long delay closing so I could keep as much rent. And so that average, the average property I held for like 67 days. So I would get that rent factor uh, to roll into it. That really helps with my cash on equity. So I started at $429,000 and ended up using that cash to buy, you know, this property, which was an $800,000 purchase, but 150 into it worth about 1.4. Today, after a little bit of a decline in the Banner Elk, paid 1.6. That's doing $275,000 in cash flow. Probably worth about the same that I paid for it into my Beach Mountain property and was able to pull a lot of cash as well. Did a couple of 1031s out of there. So because I'm analyzing that cash on equity, right? So like that first $429,000 property, I only owned technically for 18 days. I sold it to Brandon Thompson, you know, and made $189,000 in 18 days. So why would I not sell that? So I look at that return, 189 grand. I was going to net down to that $429,000 investment around $27,000, $28,000 a year. So I'm looking literally at almost a five-year, six-year return on that. I'd rather take that cash now, level up the property, reinvest. That's where I'm looking even today at my portfolio every single quarter. I'm looking at my cash on equity, right? So it's really interesting. And you have to really understand where you're at and what stage of investor you are. So I used to be in the Robert Kiyosaki camp where I would cash out refi. I would heat lock. I, I, if I didn't have the cash, uh, then I would be one of those guys to do that and take on more debt. You know, that beach property, Dragonfly, did 357. I've got close to a million dollars in equity in that, but I still owe like 700,000, right? So I'm kind of like in no man's land. I I literally could go pull 700, 800,000 potentially out of it and then reinvest, let's just say $700,000 into like $3 million worth of additional property. But I'm not going to do that because that doesn't fit into my overall plan of where I am in my age and my life and what I'm trying to accomplish. I'm paying down that debt. I'm paying an extra like $5,000 a month in equity on principal pay down. For that, I'm making two, I'm accelerating my payments to where I can get that paid down as fast as I can because now I'm more on the Dave Ramsey side and I want to eliminate as much of my debt as I can as I move closer and closer to retirement since I'm within five years. So a lot of that has to do with the strategy and why we need to evaluate our cash on equity. Then I mentioned earlier is the cash flow. So I'm looking at cash flow every single month on every single property. And I kind of look at this on a month-by-month basis, but I'm also looking at it seasonally and annually from a cash flow perspective. 
because I need to know what my net income is and I need to know what that cash flow is correlate to my cash on equity to determine if I'm going to hold on to a property or if I'm going to sell it and reinvest into a bigger property. Now, if I'm going to do that, then interest rate and terms become a really big deal as I kind of go from operating all the way back up to the investing again. Interest rate hasn't really been a big deal. You can still get 6% interest rates. There's uh, David Kang. I was just kind of messaging with him and he was able to get 6% uh, yesterday. And I got just six, six and a quarter on my last close that I just did. It's not, not everybody's at seven and a half to 8%. Now, obviously that depends on a whole myriad of factors, uh, but that's why I'm looking at cash flow when I do that monthly on. It's one of the reasons that I do P&Ls every single month by the 10th of every month. It's why I require my mastermind members to update their benchmarks. So just to get them in the habit of being able to do that, and then they can share that data within the mastermind and within their accountability groups. It's some of the most powerful data that we have in our industry because it's real true data and it has all the numbers behind it. It has cleaning costs, it has all the stuff. So that's what I'd highly recommend for all of you to make sure that you're doing a profit and loss. Even if you're just putting it onto an Excel spreadsheet, even if it doesn't go into QuickBooks to where you have your revenue, line item out all your expenses, all the way down to phone bills and handyman expenses, your travel expenses, internet costs, all that type of stuff and get a true P&L. It's the only way that you can truly know the health of your business. And yes, owning a short-term rental is a business. So cash on equity from an operating standpoint, cash flow. Now let's talk about revenue. So the overall revenue, I'm looking at the ADR, but I'm looking at my ADR really seasonally. That's kind of the first place that I'm looking at. A lot of people just throw that acronym around and man, I mean, especially, you know, between ultra peak season and, you know, your slow season, the ADR is so not even relevant. I can tell you that there's, I, I co-host a property, ski in, ski out. We're getting $1,800, $1,900 a month you know, in the heart of ski or a, a night in the heart of ski season. And now it's like $2.99 a night on Beach Mountain. I have $2,500 a night for a compression event at that large beach property. I'm averaging just under 2000 a night. That'll be probably right at 2000 to 2100. Uh, I've got like four or five weeks to book and they'll be booked in that 2250 to 2350 per night range. But that's $500 a night in January and February. So the ADR needs to be looked at. I look at it on a seasonal standpoint, and then I break it down on a monthly standpoint. So I actually have a column on a spreadsheet to where I track the monthly ADR. So I can compare that year over year. That's something that I absolutely got annihilated on at the beach in January or February. So I got to see how far I fall behind on my cash flow, how far I fall behind on my revenue. How is that being affected by my ADR? So then that way I can use that data next year. But I also am using last year's data year over year against this year's data to where I see that how much I've got to catch up. I was down like 41%, you know, in January and February. And the 41% really isn't the big number. It's really the, the cash difference, the delta on the cash that I've got to make up. That's why I'm being more aggressive in my marketing and more aggressive in my pricing strategies for this Uber high demand property during the ultra peak season. Last year, I got 1,780, I think it was, I think it was 1,781 a night on average. I'm almost $200 per night above that. And that should escalate by another probably 50, 60 bucks through the end of the summer. That's gonna make up a huge difference. Now on lower performing properties, I've had to go into the three, two, one strategy that I've talked about. So there's other key points too. You gotta look at the cleaning costs. 
So if I was last year in the same year over year, last year in my little Dragonfly property, 3-2 beachfront in Fort Morgan, I was Saturday to Saturday. Now I've got the 3-2-1 pricing strategy. So that's three nights on the weekend, two nights during the week, and the one-night gaps. I've got to budget at least one additional cleaning per week. So that's going to double my cleaning costs. So let's just say for easy math, it's 300 bucks. I think it's like 235, but for 300 bucks, and I'm looking at 11 weeks, so that's going to be $3,300 roughly in additional cleaning costs. So I'm factored that those data points in as I'm increasing my price point to offset. So I want to offset the cleaning cost by increased pricing. I'm lowering my stays and hopefully I'll have the same outcome at the end of the summertime. Then the last one is really annually. That's, that's a no brainer, right? So we're looking at ADR. I'm looking at monthly revenue. I'm looking at monthly cash flow on my P&Ls. I'm going in every three months, every quarter, and I'm doing an audit on my cash on equity. And I'm looking at this as an annualized basis, but also a quarterly basis. So one of the things, if I'm going to sell a property, I want to strategically sell at the right time. So if I was going to sell that beach house, I'm selling it right now. So where somebody can get closed and they'll be going into the summer, they will be willing to pay more money because they're to get in before summer. So that way they can have that cash flow. If I'm selling on Beach Mountain right now, coming out of ski season and how poorly it's been booked and everybody's struggling on Beach Mountain, North Carolina during this mud season right now, people are probably going to want to wait to get through the summer season. Summer should be better than winter, but that is not a foregone conclusion. So I think it'd be a much tougher sell in Beach Mountain today than it would be selling at the beach. The other thing, and I kind of go back to implement going from a seven-day Saturday to Saturday to a three-two-one. that's our overall costs, right? So cable's going up, internet's going up. We're paying more for bottled waters, more for toilet paper just to really look at that cost year over year and also month to month. So one of the things that, that I do, I don't know that everybody hosts this way is I, I provide all the supplies. You know, I don't want, you know, sandpaper, toilet paper, and you know, the cheap paper towels. So we, my wife, and I get everything from Costco If we can't ship it there or they, if there's a Costco, then we will pay for the annual membership for the cleaners to be able to purchase. We'll reimburse. We just, we want to make sure that we control our we, the cleaning supplies, toilet paper, paper towels, the shampoos, the conditioners, all that stuff we do. So a lot of that cost is going up. And a lot of you have that stuff rolled into your cleaning costs, but that's kind of part of the level up of our brand that we want to have that control. Now, getting away from the cash standpoint, some additional metrics are my rankings. So my rankings directly, and your rankings too, directly correlate to the pricing strategy. So that ADR is going to be affected by where you're ranking. And nobody can show me that they can, can show me data that they can get the exact, they can maximize your rates on page three, four, five, six, or seven, or nine, like you can if you're ranked on page one. So I can't emphasize that enough. The first, the first rule of Fight Club is don't talk about Fight Club. The first rule of pricing optimization as a short-term rental host is get your listing to page number one and then get into those top five results and you can really take advantage of the pricing. Hence, my super high demand property is in the top one, at least top three for, it's a 14 uh, occupancy for eight and up to 14. That gives me the opportunity to do what I'm doing and maxing out. That's Dragonfly, Little Dragonfly, the 3-2 Beachfront, not so much. It used to be on page nine. I did, I got it up to page four. I'm really having problems breaking into page three, two, one. 
I don't have amenities. I don't have hot tubs. I don't have all that other stuff that Kenny talks about, you know, from the data. It's not pet friendly. I don't have a hot tub. I don't have kayaks. I don't have sops. I don't have, you know, a bunch of stuff inside. I don't have room for, I got a coffee bar. I don't have room for waffle bar, the soon to be milkshake bar that I'll be introducing and, and all these different amenities that my high demand property has, because it's bigger. I have a lot of space. Well, there's other properties, and I can see it by doing Avery Carl's enemy method that have these amenities. And so I'm trying to compete with them, and I just can't penetrate and get up without, you know, dropping my shorts on my pricing, which I'm completely unwilling to do. So I'm either going to have to drop my price into gain rankings, or I'm really going to have to drive more off OTA traffic to convert from a direct booking standpoint. And that kind of t- correlates into the marketing. The marketing, you really want to make sure that you're tracking two things, your time and your dollars, your time and your dollars. So a lot of people don't factor in your time. Look, if you have a W-2 and you're making $150,000 a year and you get two weeks worth of vacation and you're working 40 hours a week, Monday through Friday, you make about $85 an hour. So just if you make $300,000, you're making $170 an hour. So if you think about that, that's going to be your time valuation. Then you need to think about your ad spend. For those of you that are really trying to build your Facebook pages and you know do all this you know social media stuff that takes a lot of time, you're probably spending more money on your personal time valuation than you are on your advertising budget. And I would tell you to flip that. Spend less time, uh, use chat GPT, use some of these components, spend more dollars on your advertising to be able to drive that traffic. Just make sure you have really great creative because most ads fail because you don't have great creative, you don't have a valuable call to action for your potential community. So that's the investing and operational side of some key data points that I'm going over literally every single month. The only one I'm really not looking at monthly is the cash on equity. I keep my eye on it, but I'm really looking at that and doing a deeper you know, analysis on a quarterly basis. Hopefully these help for you. Give a shout out to Kenny Bedwell. Congratulations on the, on the baby. He'll be back with me next week on next week's episode. Uh, if you have any questions, just drop a comment down below, or you can, you know, just hit me up with a DM on Instagram, BillFaith73, and I'm more than happy to help you. Thanks for joining me on STRonomics. Happy hosting, everybody. Thank you for listening to STRonomics. Stay ahead of the curve and subscribe today. This podcast is a Hospitality.fm production.